0: Welcome everyone on live stream, (laughs) and and welcome everyone here, and you have endured to the end till the final week of Master Plan for Life. Started in September, had to endure a shutdown during uh, June, or excuse me, January, and then another night off sometime in February, so we've had to combine a few lessons in order to get through uh, all 28, but here we are with lessons 27 and 28 tonight. And lesson 27 will start on page 257, page 257. And I'll remind you to where this fits in, these last two lessons. They go together, so that's the good news. If you're going to have to cover two lessons in one night, then it's good that they're related as they are. And they're related by the fact that on page 257, you see that this starts a new and final section called the Destiny of the Church, upper right-hand corner. So we're trying to answer this question we have for 12 lessons now in part 2 of Master Plan for Life, this one question, why am I here? And why am I here? You see in the box on page 257, I am here to participate in the reign of Christ Jesus. So this will be the final component to why the Lord has us here and what our future is. So tonight is about the future of the church. Page 257, we've seen that God is using the local church as the source, the means, and the end of ministry in this dispensation. Thus, this dispensation is called the church age. Every believer is intended by God to minister within the context of the local church. But this age will not last forever. When will it come to an end? What is the future destiny of the church? <clears throat> the question, why am I here, touches the issue of that destiny. A proper understanding of our future has effect on how we live today. The apostle Paul had what theologians sometimes call an eschatological worldview. It's from a fancy word, uh, eschaton, eschatos, which is Greek eschatology, the study of last things. In other words, Paul had a view of the world and his life in the here and now that was shaped by his understanding of what God's going to do in the future. So, in these two lessons, we're going to take a close look at the church's destiny. Why am I here? It's to reign, uh, participate in the reign of Christ Jesus. Even though our work for Christ in the present age is sometimes difficult, we know that we are on the winning team. We will not face God's judgment and wrath that will be poured out on this evil world one day. Rather, we can look forward to the joy of being rewarded for our current service for Christ, being a part of His victory over His enemies, and then working by Christ's side through all eternity. So that's what we're going to see tonight. Now, if you go to page 262... You go past the uh, homework to the actual lesson, lesson 27. And this one is the church and the tribulation. The church and the tribulation. So what part does top of page 262, the church, play in the future? The Bible foretells a seven-year period involving unparalleled judgment and anarchy. A time when one man, empowered by Satan, will rise to power and control the political, religious, and and military resources of the entire world. It will be a time when God himself will gradually and systematically unleash his wrath upon humanity. This period is called the tribulation. This lesson describes the nature, the events, and then where does the church fit into that. So let me just take a few minutes to just kind of give an overview of this, the tribulation, and how the church relates to it. And everything I will say in these couple of minutes, we will see in the notes, but then I can hustle through the notes fairly fairly quickly. But if you go back to the first part of your Bible, the, the Old Testament, you find prophecies, as most of you know, uh, predictions from the prophets. Not everything the prophets said was a prediction of the future, but often they were predicting things that were going to happen, predictions about the Messiah who would come, who we know to be. Jesus Christ now. So they made predictions about that, about what would happen in his life. Uh, Also predictions about God's chosen people, about Israel, about the race that primarily comprised that nation, the the Jews. And the prophets were all of that race, the Jews, and of the nation Israel uh, when it split into two, the northern portion Israel, the southern portion Judah, uh, you had prophets from Judah, you had prophets from Israel, but they're all talking about this same thing: this this coming uh, destiny for for God's God's people, His chosen people. But in the Old Testament, that's talking about it's talking about Israel, and there's a lot that's said there about Israel. And one of the one of the most intriguing books in the Old Testament, and one of the most intriguing chapters in that intriguing book is Daniel chapter 9. The entire book of Daniel, the entire 12 chapters, is an amazing book. Predicting world history, if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees, some of you will remember, a dream of a, uh, of a statue, and then the head is of gold, and then the chest is of silver, the midsection is of bronze, and the legs are of iron. It's got these four sections to it, and then Daniel comes along and interprets it as the four world kingdoms that will come. And mind you, when Daniel is doing this, he's only in the first of these. (laughs) So Daniel is living during the golden, the head, the gold head of Babylon. But Babylon is going to be succeeded by Persia. And then Persia, history tells us, is going to be succeeded, was succeeded by Greece, uh, the Greek Empire, and then finally the the Roman Empire, these four world empires. And here's Daniel uh, predicting all, the, the book of Daniel, predicting all of this, God revealing all that's going to happen in these world empires. So that's Daniel chapter 2. You come to Daniel chapter 9, and you get to Daniel chapter 9 and, and verse 24. Daniel 9 24, and there's a prophecy, a prediction, about what's going to happen with God's people, uh, Israel, the Jews. And this prophecy, this prediction says, Daniel 9:24, that 70 70, 70, 77s are decreed for your people. Seventy sevens. That's what it says. If you were to look into King James in that verse, it says 70 weeks. And in English, we use week to refer to seven days. But in Hebrew, which your Old Testament was written in, uh, the word that's translated weeks there means just a period of seven somethings. It can be a period of seven days. It can be a period of of seven years, and in the context, it's seven. Uh, it's a periods of seven years. So when it says seventy sevens, it's saying seventy periods of seven years. Now do the math. That's four hundred ninety years. So you've got Daniel chapter nine in verse twenty four, and it says, "You've got four hundred ninety years that are decreed for your people." And then it goes on in verses twenty five and. 26 all the way through verse 27 Daniel 9 24 through 27 and it talks about six things that are going to happen with the nation of of Israel in that 490 year year period including that the Messiah it says in that passage during that 483 year period is going to be cut off that is killed so the coming Messiah is going to be going to be killed we know that happened But it says that that's going to happen at the end of this 483-year period. And if you do the the math, here's what's amazing about it. If you do the math from the time that Daniel says this 483-year period is going to start till the crucifixion of Jesus, it's amazingly accurate. These 483 years fit perfectly within that. Daniel says from from the time of the decree to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. That's what he says. From that time, you're going to have these 483 years, and then the Messiah will be cut off. And if you do the math on the time that the decree went from King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem to the crucifixion of Jesus, lo and behold, you get 483 years. But if you're still awake, you may remember I said 490 years. So you got another seven years. So what's up with this dangling seven years? (laughs) You've got the Messiah being crucified predicted in Daniel chapter 9. 490 years total, but only 483 are accounted for in in that passage. So you've got seven years hanging out there. And then you come to the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, in chapters 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12, you have these time periods mentioned for what's going on in the future that the book of Revelation talks about that add up to an interesting um, period of time. It says, for example, that what's happening in the book of Revelation to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, is time, times, and half a time. That's what it says. And, again, in the context, that would be time a year times two more years, and half a time would be half a year. That would be three and a half, three and a half times. Now, why why does that matter, the three and a half? Remember, we're missing how many years? Seven. We got three and a half. And it turns out that Daniel talks about, in Daniel chapter 9, this final week or this final set of seven years and... uh, And in the middle of the period of seven years, he says, that a treaty that has been signed by a ruler that has arisen, we later know that ruler, we call him the Antichrist. You guys have heard of that, maybe? And the Antichrist, and he makes a treaty with Israel at the beginning of this last seven years, but in the middle of the seven years, in the middle would be how many? Three and a half? He breaks the treaty. And the last three and a half, he just wears out Israel with persecution and severe and horrible persecution. There's the tribulation period and then there's the great tribulation. And that last three and a half years is sometimes referred to as the great tribulation. And so you've got the seven years divided into two halves of three and a half years. In the middle of it, The Antichrist breaks this treaty with with Israel and shows himself to be what he really is, the evil personification of Satan himself uh, as the, the Antichrist. And I said in Revelation chapters 11 and 12, it gives these time periods, time, 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 times, and half a time. It also gives it in terms of 42 months. If you do the math on 42 months, that would be three and a half years. Um. So it gives uh, 42 months, two halves of that, and then it gives it in another time denomination as well, in terms of days. And it says 1260 days, and if you do the math on 1260 days, that's 42 months of of, of 30 days. Adds up to 1260 days. So in the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible, you have this allusion now to what Daniel had predicted in the... 6th century B.C. So sometime in the indeterminate future now. This is all happening. And it's all happening in accord with what the prophet Daniel had predicted about this final seven years. Divided into three and a half years, the middle of which there's the breaking of this treaty. And it's called 1260 days. It's called 42 months. uh, It's called uh, time, times, and, and half a time because you've got these two halves to this seven-year period. So that's where we get primarily this idea of the time period of a seven-year tribulation and then the, the breaking of it into halves and then what the Antichrist is going to do in each half of that. And that's what we're going to see now beginning on page 262. The nature of the tribulation. The term tribulation means affliction, persecution, trouble. The tribulation period is a future time of great trouble that comes on the entire world. But what is the focus? Well, it's first introduced in, as I've said, Daniel chapter 9, part of a vision given to Daniel regarding the future of the nation of Israel. He's told that several time periods are decreed. For your people and your holy city to, and these are these six things I talked about, finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone sin, for wickedness bring everlasting righteousness seal up vision and prophecy anoint the most holy place the subsequent explanation of this vision to daniel makes it clear that the final period of time foretold is the tribulation this verse reveals two important facts about the tribulation the focus is on the nation of israel specifically stated that these are four purposes related to daniel's people or the jews it's not a reference to people of faith in general because the verse specifies the people of the holy city, that is Jerusalem. And the focus of the tribulation is on the work of the Messiah. Six purposes are listed for this time. The first three were accomplished in the first coming of Christ. Second three are yet to be fulfilled. Therefore, it has to be noted that the tribulation period is a future time in which Christ will accomplish His purposes for the nation of Israel. That's substantiated by descriptions of this tribulation period in passages like Matthew 24, and notice Revelation chapter 4 through 19. Let's stop there for a sec. Revelation 4 through 19. And that is the bulk of the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, you've got 22 chapters in the final book of your Bible, uh, Revelation. The first three are addressed to sev- talk about seven churches. You may remember that. And then, uh, beginning in chapter 4, the church disappears. I mean, like, literally, the word church is never used again. Like the church is gone and we're going to see what I believe, why I believe that's the case because the church yeah, actually will be gone (laughs) in a thing called the rapture. And chapters 4 through 19 then deal with what's happening on earth while the church is in heaven and these things that God has decreed for Israel who have not in mass come to their their Messiah and the tribulation that comes upon them. All right, top of page 263 then. The duration, Daniel 9, refers to the tribulation period metaphorically as seven, as I mentioned. There's clear indication that it means a period of seven years. Other passages describe it as consisting of two halves made up of, as I said, 42 months, 1260 days in Revelation 11 and 12. What's the purpose? It's going to prepare Israel for her Messiah. You know, the Messiah came the first time 2,000 years ago. Israel rejected, rejected the Messiah. But I firmly believe that the Bible teaches that God is not finished with Israel, that God is going to accomplish His purposes that He promised in the first part of the Bible in His nation Israel, and that includes having them come to their their Messiah. And the tribulation is going to prepare her for her Messiah. The tribulation will judge Israel for centuries of unbelief, the last half will be a specific chastening for many years of unbelief, including her treaty that she makes with the Antichrist. And then a remnant of Israel, in fact, will, will be saved. So the purpose is for to prepare Israel for coming to Jesus. And it will be a time of judgment on the sinfulness of mankind. So specifically targeted toward God's purposes for Israel, but also all of mankind, and judgment upon. Revelation chapters 6 through 18 make it clear from beginning to end of the tribulation that God is pouring out His wrath on all of humanity. So that's the nature of the tribulation. It's a time of trouble, it's a time of difficulty, and it's for those purposes. Now here's what's going to happen then, the events. We say here, bottom of page 263, that tribulation begins with the rapture. So I said, You know, when you look at Revelation chapters uh, 4 through 19, you don't find the church mentioned at all. And I believe that the reason for that is this word, the rapture, that the church has been removed. The church has been removed from the earth. Uh, The church, remember, is not the building. The church is God's people. And so God's people who belong to Jesus are removed from from the earth in the rapture. Or what does rapture mean? It means to catch away. And where do we get this idea that the church is going to be snatched away into heaven? Well, bottom of page 263, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be Now, see these two words, will be caught up. And those two words are rapture. That's what we we mean. The reason it's called rapture is because rapture, the English word rapture comes from a Latin word, uh, rapturo. That means to be caught away. So sometimes uh, people will ask, Christians will say, do you believe in the rapture? Well, you've got to believe in the rapture (laughs) because the Bible says we're going to be raptured. I mean, it actually says that. If you had a Latin Bible, it would actually use the word rapture, okay? That verse, instead of saying caught up, would say, if you had a Latin verse, rapture, a Latin version that you're raptured. So if you believe the Bible, you have to believe in a rapture. There's going to be a rapture. Now, what you can disagree about is exactly when the rapture is going to occur, I'm going to make the case here, these notes are going to make the case, that the rapture occurs just before the beginning of the tribulation. That God removes the church and then the tribulation period begins. And so that is called a pre-tribulational rapture. Pre-tribulational, pre, prior to the tribulation. But there are some people who know that the Bible teaches a rapture and so, but they also don't believe that it's going to happen at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. They believe it's going to happen after. And so instead of pre-tribulation, what would they be? Post. So sometimes you hear people say, are you pre-trib or post-trib? There are a few people who are mid-trib. Don't worry about them. <laughs> but pre-trib or, or post-trib. You know, is it, does, does the church get raptured? beforehand or at, at the end, and we're going to make the case here, and it's in our church's doctrinal statement, that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, lots of good people differ about that, so we don't make a gigantic deal about it, but when I come to, when I went through the book of Revelation, this is what I taught. When we go through Master Plan for Life, this is what I believe, uh, but you can disagree uh, about that, um, but I'll try to convince you as we go as we go through here, okay, that it's a pre-tribulation rapture. But everybody's got to believe in the rapture. That's what it means to be caught away. Page 264. Two important truths to understand. One, it's imminent. This means the rapture could happen at any moment. There's no event of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled between now and the rapture of the church, so we must always be prepared to meet the Lord. It could happen at any time, at any moment. Um, the Bible speaks of it, well... it. In fact, in the next the point there, it's not only imminent; it can happen any time, it's sudden. It'll take place in a split second. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So when it says that the, word for, the Greek word for twinkling of an eye is the word from which we get atom, like atomic, A-T-O-M. When we say it's going to happen in a split second, that's why. When we say it's the twinkling of an eye, it's, it's over. If you've ever thought about the rapture, sometimes people think of it as, you know, the Lord's calling His people, and all of a sudden we just sort of start slowly rising. Almost like a hot air balloon, you're just sort of, you know, we're all going up, and we're floating and waving. <laughs> and we're going up, and we got time to chat with each other. And you're looking around, and you're going, I didn't know you would be in the rapture. <laughs> But no, it's, it's just like that, in an instant, in an atom, a, the twinkling of an eye. And when is it? It immediately, we believe, precedes the tribulation period as demonstrated below. So it is a, a, a catching uh, away, caught up. And it's dominated, middle of page 264, by the person I mentioned earlier, the Antichrist. During the tribulation period, Satan is going to empower two of his servants, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Of these, the Antichrist will be the most prominent. The false prophet will serve him. Here's the profile of the Antichrist. Highly intelligent leader, great orator, capable of captivating his audiences, capable politician, military genius, and he will be supremely confident. So when you look at political leaders today, just look for those characteristics and not to identify the person as the Antichrist. I mean, if you're gonna go beforehand, you don't really have to worry about that, identifying the Antichrist. Christians like have made a hobby out of trying to do that and identify the Antichrist. I mean, if I believe in a pre-trib rapture, I'm not sweating who the Antichrist is, okay? But the reason I say take a look at it is because it gives you an idea of how it can happen. Uh, you know, not to wax overly political, which I've been wont to do, because I, I'm concerned about what Christian people have given themselves to over the last five or six years. Did you guys get that? The last five or six years. And, but you look at some of these, certainly not all of them, but, you know, captivating audiences... Um, capable politician, confident, cocky, narcissistic, all of that. And you can see, you can see that. You can see ways that that can happen. We see glimpses of it. And the Antichrist won't just be a few of them. He will be all three of them. So you've got the profile. You've got the career. His career will be a sort of rags-to-riches story initially, He'll be a little-known political leader, according to Daniel chapter 7. But within a short time, he becomes the world's most powerful dictator. And here are the highlights of his career. Top of page 265, the tribulation will begin when he makes this treaty with Israel and allows her to rebuild the temple and to renew worship there. So think about that. Think about the Antichrist, this world ruler, coming, and at the beginning of this time, it all looks like it's going to be great because he signs this treaty with Israel, even allowing her to rebuild her temple. You know, right now, what you have in Jerusalem are the ruins of the temple. You have the west wall of the temple where, where devout Jews go to pray. You guys have seen scenes of that, right? Against just that west wall is what's left of the temple from 2,000 years ago. But it's going to be rebuilt, And the Antichrist is going to be the person who signs the treaty that allows that to happen. Israel is going to be thrilled then with this. Second, during the first half of the tribulation, that first three and a half years, he'll rise to the status of a world power. At the midpoint, he'll break that treaty. He'll do this in order to initiate worship of himself, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, and he will begin a a program of persecution against Israel. And at the end, the Antichrist, though, will be defeated by Christ at the Battle of Armageddon, which is the next point here. So it begins with the rapture of the church. During the seven years, you have the rise of the Antichrist. You have his treaty with Israel, the breaking of the treaty, the persecution of Israel. It concludes with the Battle of Armageddon. And you see there, it's a military campaign that takes place between Mount Megiddo and Jerusalem at the conclusion of the tribulation period. A lot of people believe that the word, uh, falsely believe, erroneously believe, that the word Armageddon is just a word for the end, the cataclysm that happens at at the end. But Armageddon actually refers to a place, a place you can go and visit right now. You can go to the valley, Har Megiddo is where Armageddon comes from. Har Megiddo, the the Valley of Megiddo. And we say here it's between the Mount Megiddo and Jerusalem, and there's this valley. And it's in this Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, where the final battle takes place. And the armies of the world gather against uh, Israel, but the one who comes to fight the battle is none other than Christ Himself, along with His army, who comes back with Him, and who do, you think that, who do you think that is? That would be people who were raptured seven years earlier who are now coming, coming back with Him. That would be us if you belong to, to Christ. So see the paragraph here. It's a military campaign. It takes place between Mount Megiddo and Jerusalem at the conclusion of the tribulation. At that time, all the world powers will converge for the decisive battle for world domination. During that battle, the Lord will return from heaven with His church. The armies gathered will unite to defend against their common enemy, Jesus Christ. The battle will end swiftly as the Lord slays all his foes. So don't sweat it. You don't need any military training for this because you don't actually have to do anything because the Lord will slay everyone. <laughs> but, you know, we'll, we'll be there. So what is the relationship of the church now to the tribulation? We believe that the church will not go through it. Some believe the church, that is all believers in this age, will have to endure the tribulation, but... We believe that's not the case because the purpose for the tribulation excludes the church. As we saw above, the purpose is twofold prepare Israel for her Messiah, and secondly, judge the sinfulness of mankind. And neither of those relates to the church because the church is distinct from Israel, number one, and has been promised not to come under God's wrath, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 5. Now, do you guys remember that? as we saw just a little bit ago on page 263, I believe it was, that the book of First Thessalonians, yeah, 263, bottom of page 263, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where you have the being caught up together, the rapture. So now when we're citing 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 5, we're citing a book, 1 Thessalonians, That's five chapters, and those five chapters are predominantly about the end times. And in a book that's predominantly about the end times, the rapture and what's going to happen in the second coming, Paul, who wrote it, says a couple of times in chapter 1 and in chapter 5 that you have not been appointed for wrath in a book that's about, in a context that's about the end times and the second coming. So the purpose of the tribulation, which is about God's wrath being poured out, does not fit for the church. And the church is promised to be kept from the horrors of the tribulation. Christ has specifically promised that the church will not go through the tribulation. Revelation 3, you've kept my command to endure patiently. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Please note top of page 266, that the emphasis of this verse is a promise to keep the church from the hour or time of the tribulation. The church will have been caught up and is in heaven at this time. So when Revelation 3.10 talks about keeping you from the hour, from the time of the tribulation, some people say that that, um, that, that word, the Greek word translated from, means it'll, that the Lord will keep you through the time of trouble so you'll be here but he'll just he'll keep you so that you can endure Uh, one of the papers i had to do when i was in seminary was on just that one verse revelation 310 (laughs) and uh the greek word that's translated from there means that he's going to he's going to keep you out literally it means out of he's going to keep you out of that hour out of that time and then on page 266 Even though we're not going to be on earth, we're going to be in heaven during the tribulation. Here's what's going to be going on with us. The church will be judged during the tribulation. The Bible teaches the church will be judged. Now, we did a podcast, Pastor Larry and I did on this back several months ago. You know, why is there a judgment for Christians? But the Bible teaches there are two uh, judgments. There is two major judgments. There is the judgment of Revelation 19, the great white throne throne judgment where john who wrote the book of revelation says and i saw a vision of this great white throne and all great and small stood before to give an account for what they had done and so there is the this judgment of the unbelieving world that is called the great white throne judgment that's not the judgment we're talking about here but there's another judgment that the bible speaks of it's called the judgment seat of christ and this is a judgment an evaluation for those of us who belong to Him, for what we did with what He gave, as we say here, the Bible teaches the church will be judged. This judgment will be a different time for a different purpose than the judgment that's experienced by unbelievers. The church will stand before what's called the bema seat of Christ during the the tribulation. The word that's used in Second Corinthians uh, chapter chapter five, and First Corinthians, Corinthians chapter three is a Greek word, the bema seat, meant the seat where the judge during the, uh, during the athletic contest would judge the participants. And that seat was called the bema seat. And that's the word that's used in these passages. And that's why we call it the bema seat of, of Christ. And believers will have their works evaluated at the bema seat for the purpose of rewards. So it's not a judgment for whether you go to heaven or hell. You're already with the Lord at this point, but it is an evaluation of what we did with what the Lord gave us. So that should be a sobering thought for us, should it not? That you've got your period of time, I've got my period of time. Uh, I'm in entering the last third of my period of time. Gage, you've got two-thirds to go. The rest of us here. yeah, we're on the downslope. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? And and really, you know, you look at your life that way. And I recommend you do that. I recommend you say, you know, if the Lord gives me my 70 years, my three score and 10, to use King James language, and now with, you know, medical breakthroughs, okay, now the average age is 78 or 80 or, you know, whatever it is. So I say I've got in my last third, it's actually probably less than that, turned 60 in March. So if I did to be 90, then that would be three sets of 30, right? but I'm not guaranteed of 90. So I may well have less than a third to go. You know, so really, think about finishing well. Think about the number of years you got left, you know, in all likelihood. And then give them for the Lord. That's why He's left us here. Otherwise, He could just take you home, right? He's got work for you to do. He's got important work for you to do. He's got eternal work for you to do. All right, just can't let a session go by without making everyone feel scared and guilty so look back at page 266 all right the church will see participate in the marriage of the lamb during the tribulation at the close Christ returns with the church the church is referred to as the bride of Christ we know that the marriage has occurred by the close because the marriage is announced in heaven near the close of the tribulation see Revelation 19 and then the church will return with Christ at the end They will wage war against the Lamb, that is, the nations of the earth. But the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. So here is a chart that puts all of that together. Far left, and the bottom of that chart, far left, it says church age. You guys see that, church age? And that's where we are right now. We're in the church age. We don't know how long the church age lasts. We know it lasts until the rapture. So the next thing to happen is the rapture, whenever that happens. When can the rapture happen? Anytime, it's imminent. But when it happens, then the church uh, goes to be with the Lord. And then that commences this seven-year period called the tribulation. We will be in heaven, but there's still stuff going on on earth, the seven-year tribulation. There's the middle of that seven years, three and a half, three and a half, but we saw that. At the end of the seven years... Christ comes back to the earth. This is the Then when we talk about the second coming, that's the second coming. He comes to earth. We come with Him. Battle of Armageddon, He defeats His enemies. And then that starts the kingdom. You see it says a thousand years there. Millennium, that's Latin for a thousand. So a thousand year kingdom. And then after the thousand years is over, you have the what we normally think of as heaven or the eternal state, which then is the subject of the final lesson, lesson 28, page 272. And this one is about that kingdom. After the tribulation, there's the battle of Armageddon, but then there is the kingdom on earth. So top of page 272, why am I here? I'm here to participate in the reign of Christ Jesus. The last lesson, we saw that God will deal with the sinful earth in judgment and wrath during the tribulation. That prepares the way for the establishment of His kingdom. As a follower of Christ, you're already a citizen of that kingdom, according to Philippians 3.20. This means that you are a player on the winning side. There's no greater comfort to the child of God than to know that one day Christ will be victorious over His enemies and that we will participate in His kingdom on earth. In fact, all that we do for Him right now has an impact on that future kingdom. So we're going to look at quickly the time, the participants, the nature, and the culmination. So the time of the kingdom. The kingdom was announced in the past, in the past in the Old Testament, middle of page 272. It was announced in the past in the Old Testament. The kingdom was expected in the Old Testament. Look at this. It has been estimated that as much as one-third of the text of the Old Testament describes the coming of the Messiah and His kingdom. It was the preeminent expectation of the believers in ages past. Specifically, God had promised King David that He would have an offspring who would one day establish David's throne for an everlasting kingdom. Look at this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, God says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now let me just ask you guys this. Where was David's throne? One, it wasn't in heaven, right? David's throne was on earth. And David's throne was not only on earth, it was actually in a particular spot on earth. It was in Jerusalem. Okay? So when God says this to to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, your throne, what does David think he's talking about? David thinks he's talking about this earthly throne in Jerusalem. Now, the reason that's important is because lots of good people, friends of mine, lots of good people, say that David's, Jesus is on David's throne right now. Lots of people believe this. Jesus is on David's throne as I stand here right now. And where is that throne? Say they. Where do you think they say not in Jerusalem right it's in heaven and so when the Bible says that Jesus as it does say when Jesus rose and he ascended and he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven they say that's David's throne and I say no David's throne was on earth and David's throne is in Jerusalem and Jesus is going to come back and he's going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and there is no place no place, let me repeat, there is no place in the New Testament that Jesus is said to be on David's throne. No place. But tons of people believe that is, that is the case. So that's why I emphasize it to you, okay? Because we believe, see that, that pre-trib rapture, I didn't push that too much. If you don't believe it's pre-tribulation rapture, you got to believe in a rapture. If you don't believe it's pre-trib, I don't want to argue too much about that. I feel much, 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 much more strongly about this idea of Christ returning and establishing His kingdom on earth because the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, has a ton to say about that. And if that doesn't happen, then you've got a ton of stuff in the Old Testament that didn't get fulfilled. And that can't happen for me. Okay, If God says there's going to be a throne on David's throne in Jerusalem, then there better be somebody who sits on David's throne in Jerusalem. And if God says to Abraham, prior to wait, long prior to to uh, David, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land as a possession forever. And I want you, Abraham, to walk the length and the breadth of it so you know what I'm talking about. And if that doesn't happen in the future, then then we've got a problem. So I think all that stuff actually still happens. Uh, just so you know where I'm coming from. Bottom of page 272. The kingdom was offered, though, at Christ's first coming. When the Messiah came, He proclaimed the message of the kingdom. He announced to the nation of Israel the kingdom was imminent. This was the kingdom that Old Testament believers had anticipated for centuries. Jesus said when He was on earth, The kingdom is in your midst. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now today the words kingdom of heaven are often thought of as referring to the abode of God. But the Israelites in Jesus' day would have understood this message as announcing the impending establishment of His kingdom on earth. The kingdom concept in the Old Testament had no other meaning. But it was offered but rejected. The leadership of the nation of Israel opposed the ministry and message of Jesus. Their opposition grew in spite of the clear proofs that Christ offered, namely the miraculous signs that authenticated His message. At the triumphal entry of Christ in Jerusalem, He made the offer Of the kingdom, public and obvious. Here's what he says. Do you guys remember the triumphal entry? This is Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Because a week before Jesus is crucified, he comes into Jerusalem as the prophet Zechariah had predicted hundreds of years before and he's riding on a donkey and they are laying palm branches before him. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And they're hailing him as the king. A week later, they're crucifying him. But Hosanna, they're praising him. And here's what uh, the, the Bible says. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But tragically, the Jewish leaders had already completely and finally rejected their king back in Matthew chapter 12. The kingdom then was postponed until a future time because he was rejected at his first coming. He announced that the establishment of the kingdom would be delayed to a future time, which is His second coming. I tell you, Jesus said, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The people who will produce its fruit are a future generation of Jews who will respond to the gospel and receive Him as Messiah. The kingdom then is going to be established in the future. It will begin after the tribulation. We've already seen that. It will commence, it will begin with the second coming of Christ. He will return, he will win the battle of Armageddon swiftly, and then he will establish his kingdom. And the top of page 274, it's going to endure a thousand years. And as I said, that's why it's called the millennium, because millennium is Latin for a thousand, thousand years. So a millisecond, a thousandth of a second, uh, a millennium, annum, like annual, so a thousand years. The fact that the kingdom will last for a thousand years is established clearly in Scripture. Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years is mentioned six times. One might ask, if this is the establishment of the kingdom of Christ, then why is it not eternal? We talk about that in a bit. So who's who participates? Well, Christ, the king. So you don't have the kingdom until you have the king. Okay, I mean, that may sound obvious, but people who say there's not going to be this literal kingdom upon earth, that this stuff is not going to happen, and lots of very good people say this, believe this, uh, then you don't have Christ here reigning on earth as the king but they still have the kingdom here somehow and so you have to modify what the kingdom looks like because as we're gonna see in a little bit as you see all that the first part of the Bible says about the kingdom I'll let you guys decide if it's here yet or not once we see what all it says okay but you ain't got the kingdom forgive the grammar until you got the king okay so Christ the King participates He fills three offices that were established in the Old Testament. He's the perfect prophet, the priest, and king. These offices converge in Christ as the one that theologians call the mediatorial head of the kingdom. He's the mediator. He's the one who's representing, ruling for God on the throne. In the Old Testament, a mediator was a member of the human race who served as God's representative and fulfilled the will of God on earth. Christ Jesus, the God-man, is perfectly going to do this during the kingdom. David had a vision of the reign of Christ the King. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom, one that will never be destroyed." Christ, the King, will be there, will be there, the glorified church. Now, we are right now citizens of the kingdom, awaiting our arrival at our destination. But the Bible teaches that we are already citizens of the kingdom. Look at Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are going to be there. We're already citizens of it. We just await our arrival in it. And we will reign with Christ in the kingdom. At the time our Lord returns, he will ascend his throne in Israel, establish then a universal government from there. The church will reign with him as his bride and co-regent. To the church at Laodicea, Christ made this promise in Revelation 3, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Alright, guys, just think about that. Ruling with Christ. Okay? So if you if you think, you know, I've got another 30 years left, I've got another 40 years left, whatever I got. You know how long all of this stuff lasts? I mean, this is a thousand years, but then we're going to see, we go into the eternal state. I mean, this just this just goes on and on of us serving Christ and serving with Christ. So the little bit of time you got here right now ain't nothing. So I already tried to make you feel guilty, but use it wisely, okay? Top of page 275. Old Testament believers will be there. It was revealed to the prophet Daniel. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the close of the the tribulation. And then there will be there believers from the tribulation. Believers from the tribulation. Now get this part. The kingdom will be populated with individuals who are still in their mortal bodies. There will be some people there, so you're going to have this mix of people that are in their glorified bodies. Because remember, we've already we've been to heaven, we've come back. You've got your glorified body. And these Old Testament believers have been raised. They've got their glorified body. But then you got these people there that hadn't died. They weren't part of the rapture. They were in the tribulation, but they got saved. They came to Christ during the tribulation. The Bible teaches that during that seven-year tribulation, there's going to be bunches of people that come to Christ because there's going to be these two witnesses that that preach Christ and people will come to Him. Well, what about those people? Christ comes back. They belong to Him now, but they have their mortal bodies. They go into the, the kingdom. You say, well, that'll be weird. We got glorified bodies and we got people in their mortal bodies. You know, how does that work? Well, we've had that before, haven't we? Remember when Jesus raised? What kind of body was he in? He was in his glorified body. He was in his resurrected body. And he hung around with the apostles for 40 days. They were in their decaying bodies, their mortal bodies, right? So you're going to have that there. These are obviously not members of the church who have been raptured, nor are the Old Testament believers who have been resurrected. They are people who embrace Christ during the tribulation, and they endure to the end. Now, think about this for a minute. Did you guys know, we'll see this in a minute, but I'm running ahead a little, that at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says, during the entire thousand years, Satan is bound. And then at the end, the Bible says he'll be loosed for a short time. This is, this cracks me up. (laughs) So Satan's bound. Who's in charge here? Is Satan in charge? Satan's not in charge of anything, is he? You guys hear me say on Sundays all the time, he's a bit player, but everybody gets spooked about the about the devil. And to hear the TV preachers lie about who God is, you think God was spooked about the devil, you know? But God's not spooked about the devil. He he will chain him anytime he feels like, for as long as he feels like. And then he'll let him go for a little bit more time. And the Bible says that Satan will go, and believe it or not, even though he knows the end is here, he's been chained for a thousand years, he still goes on this rebellion and tries to get people to follow him. And some people follow him. So who would those some people be? I mean, who does Satan have available to appeal to? I mean, we're already in our glory. We're perfect. So it won't be us. It's going to be these mortal body people. And they've had kids. They've had children in their mortal bodies. So now you've repopulated over a thousand years some more sinful people. In the world these people in their mortal bodies are, are saved but they have children who are not saved and they come into the world of the sin nature just like we do and at the end of the thousand years they're ready to take on jesus with satan and of course he puts them down and that's that's the end so you have believing israel there you'll have believing gentiles there And then, as I just said, top of page 276, the unbelieving offspring of the tribulation saints. It will be seen below that there will be a rebellion against the rule of Christ at the close of the thousand years. That's perplexed young students of the Bible. How can there be unbelievers who enter the kingdom, they ask? The answer is simple. The mortal believers who enter the kingdom from the tribulation will have offspring. These children will need to be evangelized, just like people in our day. Some of these will never become genuine followers of Christ and they end up in Satan's rebellion. Here's the nature of the kingdom. It's the focal point of of history. The Bible presents a lineal view of history. In other words, history is not cyclical, moving in endless repetitive cycles, nor is it aimless without design or direction. It's moving in an ordered fashion toward a predetermined conclusion. That conclusion is the establishment of the kingdom on earth. This kingdom orientation is obvious because of several facts. The kingdom was the object of unilateral and unequivocal promises that God made to Israel. Now, do you guys see unilateral and unequivocal? What that means is that it's not ultimately dependent on what Israel does. It's dependent on God's promise. This is going to happen. That's what we mean by unilateral, unequivocal. Second, the kingdom promises made to Israel form the dominant theme of the Old Testament. The kingdom is the theme of the, there's a fancy word, doxological priority of the Bible. That is doxa. I was saying on Sunday, in their second hour, means glory. So the, the purpose to glorify God in His world is by Him having this reign on His earth. And the kingdom is the expectant hope that we are to look forward to. It's a time, you see, be there, of universal transformation. Some believers confuse the current age with the kingdom. It's a common mistake because the Bible does speak of the fact that we are presently citizens of the kingdom. Our spiritual union with Christ the King guarantees our presence in the kingdom, but the kingdom itself is not here. The mistake is based on the failure to recognize that there are many aspects of the kingdom of Christ. We cannot make participation in the spiritual aspect of the kingdom, that is our salvation, equivalent with the whole thing. The Bible teaches there are going to be several aspects of the kingdom, We can see these six types of transformation that will take place. So you guys tell me if the kingdom's here yet. Bottom of page 276, there'll be a spiritual transformation. Everyone who enters the kingdom will have experienced the the new birth. Everyone, every last person who goes into the kingdom (laughs) will have been born again. All right, we in the kingdom yet? Everybody? Everybody born again yet? Okay then, top of page 277, there'll be a political transformation, spiritual transformation Political. Jerusalem will be the political capital of the world and the Messiah will rule from David's throne. The world's government will be a unified monarchy. We don't have that, do we? Social transformation. The kingdom will be a time of perfect peace, social equality, and economic blessing. And we list for you the Old Testament predictions of that. Physical transformation. The earth will be reordered into an almost Eden-like condition. It will be free from disease, infertility, and violence in nature. The lion will lay with the lamb. Ethical transformation. The kingdom will be characterized by an authoritative standard of right and wrong. The inhabitants of the kingdom will experience a shift in values resulting in conformity to that standard. And then religious transformation. No longer will there be a plethora, a variety of religious viewpoints competing liturgical, that is worship expressions. The Messiah will be revealed to the whole world. He'll be the universal prophet and priest and king. Under his rule, the religious expression of all mankind will be unified. What a beautiful thing, huh? But it hasn't happened yet, guys and gals. And your Bible predicts all of that will happen in the kingdom. So until you got all of that, you don't have the kingdom. And the kingdom's going to be a time when Satan will be bound for that 1,000 years. The culmination of the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not eternal. It's a 1,000 years. Serve as the prelude to his eternal reign. Satan is going to be released, as I said, and he will have this group of people that will rebel. Page 278. Mankind is going to rebel, but suffer defeat. At the end of that now, you have the great white throne judgment. The lost of all of history will be judged at the great white throne, Revelation chapter 20. And the book of life is opened and the book, purpose of the book of life is to demonstrate the lostness of each one who is being judged. The purpose of the other books is to document the sinful activity of those being judged. And apparently there are degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. All will be punished but the amount of light that an individual had on as well as the depth of his depravity will be factors in the determination of the intensity of the punishment and then with that the eternal state will begin so everything has been this earth, this present age and then you've got the age to come and the age to come has two phases to it the millennium and then the eternal state Um, just real quick I told you Several times now, a bunch of people say, hey, the kingdom, there, aren't, there isn't going to be this kingdom on earth. I told you that, right? Um, and that the kingdom is here. Christ is going to come, but he's not going to have this earthly David's throne, Jerusalem thing. That's not going to happen. The people who hold that position are called amillennialists. So remember, millennial means a thousand. What's an amillennialist? Ah means no. Like an atheist means no God. An amillennialist means no thousand years. So if you buy what I've been selling here, instead of an amillennialist, this is what we're called premillennialist. That is, Christ returns pre, prior to, the beginning of the millennium, the thousand years, and he establishes the, the thousand-year kingdom. And he does that and then after that is the eternal state. Now one of the things our amillennial friends say is this. Hey a bunch of times in the Bible it just talks about in fact Jesus would say this that you know these people who reject me for example will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So they say look all you got is two ages this age and the age to come. And that's why they just say there's what we got now and then there's going to be the eternal state. This age and the age to come. That's a big part of why they believe this, that there's no millennium because of this age, the age to come. The answer to that is this. Hey, tell me when this age started. Well, it started at creation at the beginning. And then when does it end? When Jesus comes back. And then you got the next age, the one to come. That's what they would say. Well, all right, creation until Jesus comes back. How many phases were there between creation and when Jesus comes back? Have there been a bunch of phases in this age? I mean, wasn't there like the garden phase? That's a different phase than we're in now, isn't it? You guys awake? It is. You're not, hey, you're not in Kansas anymore. You're not in the garden anymore, okay, guys? (laughs) We're not in the garden. And then there's a phase after that, you know, uh, when Moses finally comes along and the law. That's a different phase, isn't it? And then there's the church phase that we're in now you got a bunch of different phases to this age. So when you say this age and the age to come is all there is, that's not so simple because this age has a bunch of phases to it. And the age to come has two phases to it, the millennium and the eternal state. And the eternal state is the bottom of page 278. The following, following the final judgment, the universe will undergo a complete transformation. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The social order established in the kingdom will be reinstated with an important difference. Every residue of sin will have been abolished. There will be no more of these people having kids who have a sin nature. (laughs) It's all over. Christ will reign and we will be His people throughout eternity. All right. I owe you a... One minute that I will give back to you next time you take a a class that I teach, okay? But we are done. Thank you all.